Well, this morning we're going to return to the high priestly prayer in John 17, but in, in light of our time constraints this morning, I want to not read John 17 like I have in the previous two uh, sessions on this great chapter, some would say the greatest chapter in all the Word of God, but I want to invite you to start by turning back to Exodus chapter 28, Exodus chapter 28, and we know that in the New Testament, uh, Jesus Christ is portrayed as the great high priest who intercedes for believers before the throne of God in heaven, and uh, the book of Hebrews in particular uh, reveals that Christ's intercessory role on our behalf was pictured uh, or foreshadowed or illustrated in the Old Testament through the ministry of the high priest of Israel. The high priest served as an intercessor, a representative of God's people whenever he would enter the tabernacle uh, or the temple. And one of the more tedious sections to read through in the Old Testament is the detailed instructions that, that God gave to the nation of Israel regarding how they were to worship. For example, it might seem boring or monotonous when you read about the precise patterns of the tabernacle uh, and how it was to be constructed along with the priestly garments and, and how they were to be designed. But there's some rich imagery in those texts with some profound implications for our lives as Christians. You're there in Exodus 28. Let, let me read for you a portion of this chapter. Starting in verse 1, here God through Moses was giving the nation of Israel the specific requirements for the design of the priestly garments. This is what God says in Exodus 28, verse 1, Then bring near to yourself Aaron, your brother, and his sons with him from among the sons of Israel to minister as a priest to me, Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, Eleazar, Ithmar, Aaron's sons. You shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, for glory and for beauty. You shall speak to all the skillful persons whom I have endowed with the spirit of wisdom, that they may make Aaron's garments to consecrate him, that he may minister as, as priest to me. These are the garments which they shall make, a breastpiece and an ephod and a robe and a tunic of checkered work, a turban and a sash, and they shall make holy garments for Aaron your brother and his sons, that he may minister as priest to me. They shall take the gold and the blue and the purple and the scarlet material and the fine linen. Now listen to the specifics. They shall also make the ephod of gold, of blue and purple and scarlet material and fine twisted linen, the work of the skillful workmen. It shall have two shoulder pieces joined its two ends that it may be joined. The skillfully woven band which is on it shall be like its workmanship of the same material of gold, of blue and purple and scarlet material and fine twisted linen. You shall take two onyx stones and engrave on them the names of the sons of Israel, six of their names on the one stone and the names of the remaining six on the other stone according to their birth. As a jeweler engraves a signet, you shall engrave the two stones according to the names of the sons of Israel. You shall set them in filigree settings of gold. You shall put the two stones on the shoulder pieces of the ephod as stones of memorial for the sons of Israel. And Aaron shall bear their names before the Lord on his two shoulders for a memorial. Verse 15. 
You shall also make a breastpiece of judgment, the work of a skillful workman, like the work of the ephod. You shall make it of gold, of blue, and purple, and scarlet material, and fine twisted linen. You shall make it. It shall be square and folded double, a span in length and span in width. You shall mount on it four rows of stones. The first row shall be a row of ruby, topaz, and emerald, and the second row a turquoise, a sapphire, and a diamond, and the third row a jacinth, an agate, and an amethyst, and the fourth row a beryl, an onyx, and a jasper. They shall be set in gold filigree. The stones shall be according to the names of the sons of Israel, twelve according to their names. They shall be like the engravings of a seal, each according to his name for the twelve tribes. And then jump down to verse 29. Aaron shall carry the names of the sons of Israel in the breastpiece of judgment over his heart when he enters the holy place for a memorial before the Lord continually. And so you've got the onkstone shoulder pads, if you will, and the breastplate with four rows of three precious gemstones uh, that were connected together. These shoulder pads and this breastplate were connected, and the high priest would wear these every time he entered the tabernacle or the temple, and in doing so, he would symbolically bear the names of God's people before his holy presence. It was on his chest, it was on his shoulders. And this pictures or foreshadows or illustrates how Jesus would one day bear the names of his people before the throne of God. And like the priest of of Israel, the high priest of Israel, Jesus wears our names on his shoulders, if you will, to symbolize how he upholds us by his strength. And he also wears our names over his heart to symbolize how much he loves us. Hebrews chapter 8 Verse 1, we have a high priest who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister in the sanctuary and in the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched, not man. And so here in Exodus 28, we have really this, this glorious foreshadowing of what we see here in John 17. And uh, the reason why we connect those passages is because Uh, In John 17, we're given a preview of Jesus' ministry of intercession, and that's why it's called the high priestly prayer. And and in this epic prayer that Jesus uttered in the upper room just hours before he was arrested and and tried and, and crucified, he prayed for his disciples who were present with him at that moment, as well as those who would be his disciples in the future. Remember verse 20, it says, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those who also, for those who also believe in me through their word. Listen, if you are a follower of Jesus, if you are a disciple of Christ, if you are a believer, if you're a Christian, that means that Jesus was praying for you in the upper room 2,000 years ago. Pretty cool, huh? In fact, he's been praying for you for the last 2,000 years. He's been praying for us even before any of us were born, and in some sense, He's been praying for us forever. Why? Because God's love for us is eternal. He has always loved us and will always love us. In fact, the Bible says that our names were known by God and written down in the book of life long before we ever existed. 
Philippians chapter 4, verse 3, Paul talks about Yodi and Syntyche and, and, and the people of the church in Philippi, uh, the, these fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Revelation 3, 5, he who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments, and I will not erase his name from the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. And so in some sense that the book of life and Christ's intercessory, intercessory ministry on our behalf are connected. It doesn't mean that, he, that, that somebody's name could actually be erased. It's like, okay, I'm going to erase this guy's name. He messed up. He lost his salvation. I'm going to erase his name. No, it's not, it's a, the implication is that you can't erase your name. It's impossible. It's in, written in indelible ink called election. Revelation 13, 8, everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who has been slain. Again, Revelation 17, 8 talks about the names that have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world. And then we come to that passage that most of us are familiar with when it comes to the book of life. Revelation 20, verse 12, And I saw the dead and, great and the great and small standing before the throne, and books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. In Revelation 21, verse 27, And nothing unclean, no one who practices abomination and lying shall come into it, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. What a great concept that there's a book that has all the names of all the elect of all generations. I heard an evangelist, a well-meaning evangelist, say, in his conclusion, uh, at the time of the invitation, when when you know you're putting the pressure on people to really consider the, the claims of the gospel and, and wanting people to, to repent and believe. And, and this is what he said, quote, if you pray to receive Christ tonight, your name will be written in the book of life. Well, I don't know if that's the praise God. <laughs> because the point is, right, your name's already in there. If the Bible says that your name was written in the book of of life from the foundation of the world, the point is it's already there. And when God chose us for salvation in eternity past, he wrote down our name in the book of life in indelible ink. The point I'm trying to make here is that, that, that our names, your name, my name as believers in Christ, have always been on the Father's heart. There was a, never a time in, in, in eternity past that our names were not on his heart. And here in John 17, Jesus' heart, the heart of God, was burdened not only for his present disciples, but also for his future disciples, which led him to pray this passionate prayer for them and for us. And he's just uh, completed equipping them for what was to come. He spent a lot of time instructing them in the upper room, and now he's entrusting them to God the Father through his prayer. And we said that you could break this prayer down into three sections. In verses 1 through 5, he, he prays for himself, first of all. Secondly, he prays for his disciples in verses 6 through 19 that were right there in the upper room with him. And then in chapter, verses 20 through 26, he prays for all believers of all time. And so he began by, by praying that the Father would glorify him as he finished the work which he had sent him to do through his crucifixion and, and resurrection. And then he went on to pray for his disciples in light of the strategic role they would play. And by the way, we play in the completion of his work. And, and uh, you, you can't help but notice that there's uh, the, the, the theme of mission 
It is weaved throughout this entire prayer. I mean, you, you can't miss it, that it's all about that we are on a mission to reach the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And, and so much of this prayer uh, is a means to that end, that we would complete the task that has been given to us by the Lord Jesus Christ. And so last week, we began to look at this section uh, where Jesus prayed for his disciples, and I told you that I would just, I think the, the, the prayers that he prayed um, uh, secondarily for us uh, in verses 6 through 19 uh, really should be combined or could be combined with the prayers that he prayed specifically for us in verses 20 to 26. So I just said, hey, let's look at six prayer requests for Christ's followers. The, the, these are Christ's six priorities for his followers. I mean, these are the six things that Jesus desires most for you and for me. This is, this is Jesus' prayer list for us. If you ever wondered, what does Jesus pray for? He's up there praying all the time for us. Well, what is he praying? I would, I would venture to say uh, this is at least, uh, these are at least six of the things that are on his prayer list for us. And, and this is really, uh, uh, we get a, 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 a peek into his heart to what Christ is most passionate about. This is what, this is what Jesus wants most for you, what he wants most for me, what he wants most for our church. And we said the first one uh, was the first prayer request was for comprehension or reception. And this, this again, is more implied than directly stated. Um, and in verses 6 through 10, Jesus was describing here the subjects of his prayer and expressed the reasons why he was confident that the Father would not only fulfill uh, the promises he had made to his disciples in the preceding chapters, but also why he would answer the requests he was about to make on their behalf in these following verses. And so Jesus showed his disciples, what God the Father is like, and the fact that they received him and obeyed him uh, was evidence that they had been set apart from the rest of the world and had been given to him by the Father as a gift of love. We've been talking about that the last two times. What an amazing concept that we are a love gift from the Father to the Son, the church of Jesus Christ, his bride. And in spite of all of our sins and all of our failures and all of our imperfections, all of our spots and wrinkles, as it talks about in Ephesians chapter 5, he, Christ commends us before the Father. Even when we're royal mess-ups, right? He commends us to the Father. What an amazing thought this is, that even though we falter, even though we fail, Christ is glorified when we put our hope in Him and seek to live our lives in obedience to His Word. So he prays for comprehension and, and, and reception. Then secondly, he prayed for protection or preservation in verses 11 through 16. Um, Jesus states there in those verses how he was about to leave the world, but his disciples would be left there to carry on the mission of spreading the gospel, uh, sharing the gospel or spreading the good news of salvation through him to a lost and dying world. And while Jesus was there on earth, he watched over them. He guarded his disciples as a, as a treasure that had been tr entrusted to him by the Father, but now he wasn't going to be there anymore. And so he asked the Father to watch over them, to protect them against the, the, the enemies that they would face, sin, and, 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 and the world, and the devil. And we said last week that the, the fact that Judas, one of Jesus' one of Jesus's own inner circle, 
turned away from him to do the will of the devil, that is sobering proof, a sobering reminder of how powerful and influential the devil really is. He's not to be taken lightly. Jesus also knew that that the hatred of the world against him would now be directed towards them. And yet even so, he didn't pray for the Father to take his disciples out of the world, but to protect them from the evil ruler of the world and to keep them safe while they accomplish the job that he gave them to do as witnesses to the world. We said that uh, it's very important that as we seek to be witnesses to the world, we must not be conformed to the world because that hinders our witness. That's what it means uh, here in this text where, where Jesus prayed that his followers would be in the world but not, what, of the world, right? <clears throat> and so throughout church history, we talked about the monastic movement where certain groups of Christians have thought the best way to avoid being conformed to the world or corrupted by the world was just to remove themselves from the world. So let's go in a cave and hide out. Let's go to a monastery or a convent and build big walls and, and keep the world out. And that's how we can most honor the Lord. Well, it, it sounds spiritual, right, to become a hermit for Jesus, uh, but it's very unbiblical. And, and we talked about how this is a subtle danger that, that, that I think every church needs to guard against because in an effort to insulate ourselves from the world, we end up isolating ourselves from the world. And, and as a result, we lose our ability and we fail at our responsibility to be salt and light. And it was very clear that Jesus was and is praying for us specifically that we would have a passion to infiltrate the world with the gospel. And he was praying that, that we would never be guilty of taking ourselves out of the world, as so many of us do, uh, or guilty of not trusting God to protect us uh, as he prayed for protection uh, as we engage the world with the gospel. And Christ provided the perfect example, of course, of how to influence the world without, without being influenced by it, in that he was set apart from sinners, it says, but he was also a friend of sinners. There's the, there's the Christ-like balance. They, they were separate. We remain separate from sinners but at the same time, we're friends of sinners. And so that was protection and, and, and preservation. Now let's look at uh, the remaining prayer requests on Jesus' prayer list for the church. Number three is sanctification or dedication. Sanctification or dedication. And we pick up where we left off last week in verse 17. Jesus prayed, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also sent them into the world. For their sakes, I sanctify myself, that they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. And so he's praying here for our sanctification. And that word sanctify, we know, means to separate or to to set apart something for special use. And I think the tense here indicates Uh, that Jesus was not necessarily thinking about the process of sanctification so much as the initial act of sanctification. You're like, wait a minute, I'm I'm confused. I thought thought there was this, this initial act of justification, and then there's this process called sanctification that leads to ultimately to to glorification. Well, it's interesting 
um, what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 2. He says to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling. He goes on in 1 Corinthians 6, 11, such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Spirit of our God. You're like, whoa, Paul, you're getting me all messed up because you're, you're putting sanctified in front of justified. Doesn't go justified, sanctified, glorified. Well, the point is this, that when a person is born again, they're immediately sanctified, they're set apart from sin unto God. They're declared a saint. They're considered a saint. And so there's this initial act of separation and, and dedication unto the Lord. Now, sanctification is also a process that involves us being progressively set apart from sin, whereby we're enabled to, 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 to buy God to sin less and less and become more and more like Christ. And the process here of, of, of sanctification, both the initial act of sanctification and, and the, the, the progressive sanctification is accomplished through what? Verse 17, sanctify them in the truth. What, what are you talking about? What truth? Your word is truth. And so the, the primary tool that the Spirit of God uses to sanctify us and make us more like Christ is His Word, the Word of God. 2 Thessalonians 2.13, God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. I love 1 Thessalonians 2.13. We constantly thank God, Paul says about the Thessalonians, he said, we thank God that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which performs its work in you who believe. Guess what? As we're sitting here under the teaching of God's word this morning, we're reading the word, we're explaining the word, we're seeking to apply the word, guess what? You are being sanctified. You are in the process right now of being more and more set apart from sin under Christ. You are becoming, Lord willing, more like Christ today because of this time that we're spending in His Word. And so the work of sanctification is accomplished in our lives as we are continually exposed to the truth of God's Word. And so whenever we we, we, we read and hear and study and apply the Word of God. It, what does it do? It captures our hearts. It changes our lives. And we become more set apart and suitable to serve the Lord. You may have seen this as well as I have. But, but you cannot question this. The most mature Christians are those who spend the most time in God's Word. Would you agree? The most mature Christians... The most Christ-like people are those who spend the most time in God's Word. Homer Kent said it this way, As the disciples live for God day by day, the application of God's truth to their lives would have a purifying effect as it would call sin to their attention and cause confession and restoration to follow. By this means, they would be set apart from sin and consecrated to the ministry to which Christ had called them. And so again, this time together in God's Word this morning, the time you had in equipping hour, it, it was having a purifying effect. It was calling sin to your attention. It was causing you to confess, causing you to be restored to the Lord, and just consecrating you and making, more, making you more useful to the Lord. 
Merrill Tenney said it this way, the believer is so changed by the working of God's word in his life that he is separated from evil and to God. This new devotion produces purification of life and consecration to God's service. And so he's praying here, Jesus is praying that that God would sanctify them, set them apart to serve him, and, and the means that he was going to, that he prayed that God would use to do that would be, was through the word of God. Verse 18, as you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. And so Jesus prayed that we would be sanctified, consecrated, ultimately in light of our evangelistic mandate. Again, our, our sanctification is not so we can all sit around in Bible study and go, oh, aren't we so much more like Jesus? You're so much like Jesus. Oh, and I, you it, that's, it's a means to an end that we go out of the Bible study to a lost and dying world. And they go, wow, that, that, I never met anybody like that person before. What planet are you from? You, you are so kind. You're so loving. You're so gracious. You're so forgiving. You're, you're, you're so Christ-like. And so Jesus expected his followers to carry on the mission that he started. That's what he meant. He said, I, listen, you sent me into the world, Father. Now I'm sending them into the world. And in the same way, Jesus was sent into the world on a mission to make the Father known. Even so, he has sent us into the world on a mission to make him known, to make Jesus known. Chapter 20, verse 21. Jesus said, peace be with you as the Father has sent me, I also send you. We know Matthew 28 Jesus said, go and make disciples of all nations, right? Baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, teaching them to do all that I've commanded you. That's the great commission. That's the mission that he gave us as disciples. Romans 1.1, Paul said this, that he was set apart for the gospel of God. God didn't save Paul and sanctify him so that he could just um, be this great Bible teacher. And go, wow, look at the amazing testimony. No, it was, he was set apart for the gospel. Do you realize that, that, that God, could have, God, could have, God could win this world to Christ in a, in a myriad of different ways? We haven't even thought about it, but he talks about rocks crying out in the scriptures. He could have, he could have created talking rocks. He could have the angels come down from heaven and sing in the, the heavens as they do in the book of Revelation. But that's not the plan. The plan is he chose you. And he chose me to be the gospel witness in this world, that we're set apart, we're saved for the gospel, that we would turn around and tell other people about the gospel. We heard the gospel, we repent and believe the gospel, and then we turn around and go tell other people to repent and believe in the gospel. We're set apart for the gospel. And Jesus is praying in heaven right now that our witness for him will bring many others to repentance and faith. That's what he's praying. Lord, would you use the witness of Lakeside Bible Church? Would you use the witness of that believer and that believer and that husband, that wife and that guy and that student to bring others to repentance and faith? Verse 19, for their sakes I sanctify myself that they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. You're like, whoa, time out. How does Jesus need to be sanctified? I thought that was just for sinners. Well, again, that gives us an indication here that he's not necessarily had in his mind this idea of this progressive sanctification, but this initial setting apart uh, 
from sin to the service of the Lord. And again, I think Jesus was referring to how he had separated himself and dedicated and consecrated himself to die on the cross for us. The purpose of Christ's sacrificial death was so that we would be saved and sanctified, that we would be set apart from sin. And so his sanctification makes our sanctification possible. Maybe a better word is not sanctification, but his radical dedication and devotion provides the pattern and the power for our dedication and our devotion. That's what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 14, for the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died, and he died for all, that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. So the point is this, the cross is the standard of our sanctification, In the same way he was willing, Christ was willing to sacrifice his life for us, we should be willing to sacrifice our lives for him. One commentator, I think, said it well. He said, as Jesus prepared to send his followers out into the harvest with the gospel, it was not their strength, their ability, or their understanding, but rather his own action on the cross that was the basis for their work. Well, now we come to verse 20. And there's a noted transition here. I do not ask on behalf of these alone. In other words, he's been specifically praying for his disciples in the upper room, the 11. He says, I don't ask on behalf of these alone, but for those, who, those also who believe in me through their word. So Jesus shifted his, the focus of his prayer here from the 11 disciples to all those who would become followers of him in the future. And so it's as if Jesus was gazing out across the centuries of church history and had in view every believer who would be called out from every tribe, tongue, and nation, including you. You were on his mind, you were on his heart when he was praying this in the upper room. And he prayed indirectly for us in verses 6 through 19, but now he prays directly for us, specifically for us. And what are his prayers specifically, directly for us? Well, the fourth thing on his prayer list, his fourth priority, if you will, is unification. Unification. And I would add to that persuasion. Again, all these things, there's means to an end. He didn't pray that we'd all be able to sit around and sing kumbaya for the rest of you know, our lives until Jesus comes back. No, there's a reason why we are, we are to be unified, because ultimately it is the most persuasive argument for the gospel. Again, you see the, 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 the theme of mission here. And so notice what he says here as he prays here for the unity of the body. Verse 20, I don't ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, even as as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, just as we are one, I in them, you in me, that they may be perfected in unity. So that all be one is an expression that's that's used a couple of times. It was also used back in verse 11. I am no longer in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world. I come to you, Holy Father, keep them in your name, the name which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are. 
So as Jesus looked ahead to the addition of many, many more disciples, again, from every tribe, tongue, and nation, all different backgrounds and personalities and temperaments and upbringings and interests and preferences and convictions, etc., etc., Jesus made a special plea for unity amid all that diversity. And notice, he says, that they may be all, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you. The unity of believers is based on the triunity of the Godhead. And in order to understand the, the kind of unity that Christ was praying for here, for the body of Christ, we need to understand the unity within the Trinity between the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. There's a unity in diversity. That you've got three different persons and yet one all at the same time, and they're all united in one purpose. That's the point. It's impossible for the members of the Trinity to work at cross purposes with one another. Can you imagine the Father, the Son, or the Holy Spirit getting sideways with one another? Getting cross-threaded with one another? Having a falling, some kind of falling out with each other? Getting offended at one another? It ain't happening. So why is that happening in the church? Why do people have a falling out? Why do they, why do they get offended by one another? Why, why do they get sideways with one another? Well, because we're not fulfilling God's design and, and, and Christ's intent for the church to be one. What, what, what is it that joins us together as believers? Well, I would submit to you it's a common person and a common purpose. A common person and a common purpose. The person is Christ, and the purpose is helping people come to know Him and grow to be like Him. You may have heard of the marriage triangle. If you've got two couples, uh, I should say a husband and a wife, and, and, and they're trying to grow closer together, and, and, and so it's the marriage triangle. You've got three people involved in a marriage. You've got, you've got Christ, right? You've got the husband, and you've got the wife, and oftentimes we try to connect. We try to become intimate on a, on a human level, on a horizontal level, and the real key to growing intimate as a husband and wife is to focus on the same object, and that is Christ, and as the husband grows in his relationship with Christ, as the wife grows in her relationship with Christ, look what's happening. They're getting closer and closer, becoming more and more unified. And so the point is this, that that applies to everyone in the church, right? As we're all down here on this level trying to relate to one another, hey, what's what's the quickest way to be intimate and to be close and to be unified? Well, get our eyes off each other and get our eyes on Christ. And if we keep our eyes on Christ as we continue to grow in Christ, guess what? We're all just coming at it from all different directions, but we're all looking at Christ and we're getting closer and closer to Christ and then we're getting closer and closer to each other. And what should draw us together and bind us together is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's not secondary, extra-biblical things like how we choose to educate our children or how we eat and is it healthy or not and what do you eat and and essential oils and personal convictions about vaccinating our children and should or should or we shouldn't. Listen, all this stuff, it's all well and good, but listen, that's between you and the Lord. And these are not things that should unite us or divide us or define the culture of our church. I was so blessed by a recent um, 
member who joined, and uh, in, in their membership application, we have a question that says this, why did you leave your former church? We're just curious to see what was going on there, um, and why did you come to this church? And so in, in the answer to that, why did you leave your former church, it was simply we began to grow more and more un- uncomfortable that the culture of the church was becoming more and more defined by all these secondary things. And it wasn't the gospel. It wasn't, that wasn't central. It seemed like we were losing the gospel amidst all these good things that were just secondary. The, the point is this, that reaching people with the gospel is what matters most, beloved. That's what matters most. And we should be way more passionate about, about that than any of these other things that, listen, we don't all agree on. And that's okay. They're non-essentials. And yet if we make these essentials, then guess what? They could potentially divide our church. We all come from different backgrounds and we have different personalities. We have different preferences, different convictions. And so we need to guard against this judgmental inflexibility. That, that is deadly to a church. When, when we insist that everyone else in the church has to be just like us and talk like us and think like us and dress like us and eat like us and listen to the same music as us, that is one of the most disunifying things in a church. Beloved, listen, Jesus prayed for unity, not uniformity. Prayed for unity. Let's keep the, the main thing the main thing, amen? That's what I'm saying. The main thing needs to be the main thing, and that's the gospel. I hope that's what drew you to this church, was that the gospel was, was preached. Not that you found a whole lot of families that were just like you. Because guess what? People come and go, but hopefully the gospel remains the same. And that's what's going to keep us all together. That's the glue that binds our hearts. Notice what he says here. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you. Verse 22, the glory which you have given me, I have given to them. Verse 23, I in them and you in me. This is, this is uh, getting into the mystery realm right here, okay? I'm not sure how to explain this, to be honest with you. But simply to say that the unity that Jesus prayed for here is not only patterned after the Trinity, but it's enabled by our participation in the Trinity. And as believers... The Bible says that we share Christ's glory as those who, who are seated in, with, with him in heaven. We are there spiritually. In Ephesians 2, 6, it talks about that. And through our union with Christ, he is in us. And since he and the Father and the Spirit are one, what does that also mean? That they're in us as well. We've all been united by the Spirit through salvation, 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and it's our job to maintain that unity. I love what Paul says in in, in the book of Ephesians. He doesn't lay the burden on us to create unity or establish unity. He says it's already established. It's your job to maintain it. He says with all humility and gentleness, with patience, 
showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There's one body, one Spirit, just as also we're called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Listen to what one commentator said here to to try to capture this, this mystery. He said, the life that we share as Christians is nothing less than a participation in the Godhead. Now, don't go places you don't need to go like, oh, so we become little gods. Because you'll hear that heresy from time to time preached. No, it's not talking we become little gods, but somehow we are participating in the Godhead. It is a unity which not merely reflects, but actually participates in the unity of God. The unity of love and obedience which binds the Son to the Father. That's what this language about you and me and I and them and us together. And so Jesus prayed for for unity among his followers that is marked by obedience to the truth uh, that the Father revealed through him and expressed by love for one another that reflects the love that the Father has for the Son uh, and, and also that they have for us. You remember back in at the very beginning of this upper room discourse. Uh, the very first thing that Jesus did was wash the disciples' feet. And in John chapter 13, verse 34, he says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. What Jesus was saying is, hey guys, unbelievers should look at you, and the way you interact with one another... And go, man, those guys like really love each other. And they'll conclude, whatever they believe must be true. I've never seen anything like that before. Whatever they believe must be true. And again, back in John 17, notice the the mission emphasis here. He's praying for unity that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. Again, Unity is a means to an end. Verse 23, I and them, you and me, that they may be perfected in unity. Why? So that the world may know that you sent me. The reason why Jesus is so passionate about believers being unified is so that the world will be saved. Someone said it this way, as Father and Son are united in purpose, a person in purpose, there should be a melding of personalities, livelihoods, and goals among believers for the cause of Christ and his kingdom. This, he's talking about the church. I mean, we listen, we, we're, we all have different personalities and livelihoods and goals, right? We're all sitting here totally different from one another, right? And, and we, there should be a melding of all that for the purposes of, of, of Christ and his kingdom. And he said this, this unity is crucial for the world to come to faith in Jesus, For the gospel gains or loses credibility in the eyes of unbelievers to the extent that Jesus' followers show forth God's own unity and love. In other words, when we are unified as a church, the watching world will come to realize that Jesus is really who he said he is. And that he really was sent from God to save us from our sin. Our our unity validates, it authenticates the truth of the gospel, and it persuades unbelievers to believe it too. So they can experience this, this same transformation in their lives that we have. 
And yet when our church is not unified, our witness to the world is hindered. And dissensions and disputes and offenses between members in the church undermine and discredit the gospel. Guys, you realize how much is at stake in your petty offenses. When we get offended at one another, we get sideways with one another, and we, 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 get, we, 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 we have some kind of disagreement with one another, and you're like, I'm going to take my ball and go home. Really? Why don't you just destroy the gospel on the way? Because that's what's happening. When the world sees Christians fighting with each other, they conclude that, the God, that, that Christianity is a joke. Why would I want to have anything to do with that? I got enough problems of my own. I don't need to add that to my life. I don't want anything to do with it. The Puritan Thomas Manson said this, divisions in the church breed atheism in the world. Division in the church breeds atheism in the world. A more modern pastor said said it this way, the gospel proclaimed from the pulpit is either confirmed and hence immeasurably enhanced, or it is contradicted and hence immeasurably weakened by the quality of the relationships in the pews. So this message is being preached this morning is either, is either enhanced by the relationships that are going on out there in our body, or it is weakened. Every time we gather together, we either strengthen or we weaken the evangelistic appeal of our church by the quality of a relationship with our fellow church members. He goes on, he says, the biggest barriers to effective evangelism, according to the prayer of Jesus, are not so much outdated methods or inadequate presentations of the gospel as realities like gossip, insensitivity, negative criticism, jealousy, backbiting, an unforgiving spirit, a root of bitterness, failure to appreciate others, self-preoccupation, greed, selfishness, and every other form of lovelessness. He said, these are the squalid enemies of effective evangelism which render the gospel fruitless and send countless thousands into eternity without a Savior. Now, we understand the doctrine of election, but think about that the next next time you're you're tempted to gossip or slander about somebody, you might be damning some unbeliever's soul to hell. Because they're going to say, if that's what Christianity is all about, I don't want anything to do with it. He says, the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which is committed to our trust, is being openly contradicted and veiled by the sinful relationships within the community, which is commissioned to communicate it. We need to look no further to understand why the church's impact on the community is frequently so minimal in spite of the greatness of our message. We've got this incredible message. Why is it not being impactful and effective? Well, we've got to look back at ourselves and go, hey, is there any way we're being a dishonor to the message. You say, how great is that message? Well, you tell me. Look at the end of verse 23. I and them and you and me and they may be perfected in you, that they may be perfected in unity so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you have loved me. Our message is that there is a God who loved Christ enough to give him a group of people who would be his bride that he will love as much as he loves his son. That's what he's saying here. 
I mean, this is a breathtaking truth that God loves us as much as he loves Jesus. How, is that, how can that be true? How, how can we be as dear to the heart of God as Christ is? Because we are our adopted sons and daughters. We are considered co-heirs with Christ, i.e. we're brothers and sisters of Jesus. And guess what? The Father loves us all the same. Pretty amazing to think about. And so Jesus was praying here that that, that we would love each other as much as, as he and the Father love each other so that the world would see that we are special objects of God's love and it would make them want to experience God's love in their lives. Like, whoa, I, I, want, I want some of that. And so he says here, basically, as one commentator says, our churches are to be love centers. Centers of love, where relationships between members are a persuasive reflection of the mutually supportive, utterly loyal, and eternally accepting love of the Father and the Son. Listen, the world is is picking up their image. They're getting their image of God from us. The question is, how do they perceive God? By watching us. Now, let me just say, say this as well, and I just feel like this is almost like a, a little addendum here, a little side note, a little footnote, if you will. Um, this passage is frequently quoted to promote the concept of churches joining forces and, and working together for the common good. And look, Jesus prayed for the unity of the church. Believers from every different religious and denominational background coming together for the common good. It's what's, what's referred to as the ecumenical movement. The universal church joining forces. And so the popular appeal in our day is for churches to lay aside their doctrinal differences and band together for the purpose of spreading the gospel or taking a stand on, on social issues that we all agree on. Like, hey, listen, I might not agree with the theology of the Catholic Church, but we both uh, believe that abortion is wrong, so let's come together and fight against that. More recently, uh, I guess back in the 90s, there was a thing called the Catholic Evangelical Accord. Some of you may have heard of that. It was a document that basically said, hey, listen, we, we essentially agree on the most important things, and, and so let's all sign this document and, and stop fighting. Let's, let's end the Reformation, if you will, <laughs> and, and let's come together and, and work together for the common good of the gospel. And yet, this is a kind of false unity at the expense of the gospel. And apparently the signers of this controversial document years ago forgot that there was a reformation for a reason. And the reformers exposed how the gospel had been distorted by the medieval church, which necessitated this historic division within the church in order to recover the truth of the gospel. And that's why there's Catholic churches and Protestant churches because we disagree on how a person is saved. We disagree on the gospel. Is it by faith or is it by faith plus works? And so all that to say, at times, unity must be sacrificed for the sake of orthodoxy. Unity must be sacrificed for the sake of orthodoxy. Well, if I may, just 
finish this up because there's only just a few more verses and these other points are a lot shorter and smaller than that main point on sanctification and unification. But quickly, what are the other things that Jesus prays for? What, what else is on his prayer list? Number five is reunion. Reunion or glorification. Uh, look at verse 24. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am so that they may see my glory, which you have given me, for you love me before the foundation of the world. Jesus asked the Father and continues to ask the Father to bring us home to be with him in his Father's house. And, and we know that's, again, how this thing all got started. John chapter 14, verse 2 In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am there you may be also. And so here's Jesus, like a a husband who's been apart from his wife for a long time and misses her terribly and can't wait to see her again and hold her in his arms. Jesus misses us. He can't wait for us to get to heaven. And he longs to embrace us as his bride. Can you imagine that? And so in answer to Christ's prayers, the Father is slowly but surely gathering one by one all those that he has given to his Son and is bringing them home to heaven to be with him. I don't know if you ever thought about it this way, but the death of every believer is an answer to Jesus' prayer in this passage. Every time a believer dies, guess what? God just answered Jesus' prayer in John 17. And we need to keep this in mind whenever we're praying for someone who's sick or, or, or dying and, and, and we're praying, oh, Lord, heal them and, Lord, keep them here for us. And Which, again, I think from a, on a human level, that's very natural, that's very normal. I'm not saying don't pray that, but just realize you may be praying at cross purposes with Jesus. Because at the same time, you're praying, Lord, keep them here, keep them here, heal them, bring them back. You know, and Jesus said, hey, bring them home. Bring them home. I want them with me. I think also, whenever we're grieving the death of a loved one, it should comfort us to know that they are with Jesus in heaven, beholding His glory. That's what he says, Father, I desire they also whom you've given me be with me where I am so that they may see my glory. There's no purgatory, there's no soul sleep, there's no like this gap where you have to wait. I mean, listen, when you die, you're instantly in the presence of the glorious Lord Jesus Christ. And when we die or raptured, whichever comes first, we will see Jesus in all of his glory, and not only will we see his glory, but we'll share his glory. He will share his glory. We'll be transformed into his glorious likeness. First John 3, 2, we know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. Philippians 3, verse 20, we are citizens of heaven from which we eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of His glory by the exertion of the power that has been even subject, has, has even to subject all things to Himself. And so there's this prayer here for reunion. Jesus is praying for reunion with you and with me and that we would ultimately be glorified along with Him. And then lastly, the last 
thing on Jesus' prayer list here is, is communion or completion. Again, all this is a means to an end. Why, why, do we, why does he pray for communion, intimacy with the Father and the Son? It's so that we can complete the task that he's given us to do. Verse 25, O righteous Father, although the world has not known you, yet I have known you, and these have known that you sent me, and I have made your name known to them, and will make it known, so that the love with which you love me may be in them, and I in them. And so Jesus wanted to include his followers in the inner fellowship of the Trinity, as we've already mentioned, to participate in the Trinity so that they can enjoy communion with them. That's what he's praying, Lord, that, that these, these followers of mine would enjoy communion with you and me and, and we'd be all together. You say, how does that work? Well, the person of Christ lives in us and abides in us through the Holy Spirit, which makes us objects of the Father's love. And so Jesus was desiring here that his followers would realize how much the Father really loves us. And to never forget that that he's always with us. Because ultimately that's what transforms our lives and and causes us to persevere in an evil antagonistic world and, and strengthens us to fulfill the mission that he's given to us to take the gospel across the street and and around the world. And so Jesus wanted us to experience the incomparable satisfaction of the love of God that he enjoyed. Someone said it this way, it was God's love which sent Christ to die for them and for those who respond in faith to that love, the warmth of the Father's heart is entered into by the believer in the deepest sort of spiritual communion. He was praying for communion with us together with the Godhead. 1 John 3, 1, see how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we would be called children of God. Well, we've learned from the Upper Room Discourse that Jesus promised that the Father would always hear and answer whatever prayers we prayed in His name. In Jesus' name. He taught us to pray in Jesus' name. And and He promised, hey, anything you pray in Jesus' name, in my name, the Father will answer. How much more confident can we be that God always hears and answers the prayers that Jesus Himself prays? If He's answering prayers that are prayed in Jesus' name, how about the prayers that Jesus Himself prays? Listen, this prayer was answered. And the fact that you're sitting here this morning is proof of that. You are an answer to this prayer. The fact that you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, that's a direct answer to the prayer in John 17. And guess what? God is going to continue to answer this prayer. How did he initially answer it? Well, Despite the disciples' fears and failures and, and initial denials um, and departures, the world's hatred, Satan's opposition, guess what? These 11 men that he was praying for went on to be the pillars of the church. 
Not one of them defected from the Lord. None of them denied the faith. They completed the mission that he entrusted to them, and the gospel spread to the uttermost part of the earth. And all of them remained faithful to the end and suffered a martyr's death for the sake of Christ. In direct fulfillment of this prayer, direct answer to this prayer. And I'm convinced that the Father is still answering Christ's prayer even now. Even right this second, Jesus' prayer is being answered as the gospel is continuing to spread. People are being saved. People are being added to the church every day. They're being sanctified through their exposure to the word of God. They're being united by their love for one another. And they're becoming more and more convinced of the Father's love for them in Christ. And they're increasing in their longing to be with him in heaven forever. Listen, we are a living, breathing testimony to the fact that God answers prayer. God answers prayer. And as we grow in love and unity as a church and we seek to glorify God by proclaiming and living the truth so that people will come to know Christ and grow to be Christ, guess what? We will continue to be an answer to this prayer. Did you ever think that you could ever be something that important, an answer to the prayer of Jesus? Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for this amazing portion of your word. And Lord, I know that there's been a lot communicated today, more probably than we can process at one time, but Lord, we just trust that uh, your word will have its intended effect in all of our lives. Lord, I pray that you would unify this body around the things that matter most. And while we can enjoy the commonalities and the, 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 the common interests and preferences and convictions, Lord, that we find with other believers in this, in, this, in this church, Lord, I pray that ultimately what would bind our hearts together is the gospel. And that's what we would get most excited about. That's what we would talk about the most is who we're, who we're sharing Christ with and praying for one another's friends and family members who'd, who are unbelievers. And Lord, that those would be the things that we invest our time and energy talking about and, and, and spending time together around. And Lord, that you would give us a longing for heaven, that heaven would not be, uh, the thought of you coming back would not be an interruption to our plans or our, our goals in life, but that there's nothing we would want more than for you to come back today, that we would have that same passion to be with you as you have to be with us. And Lord, that we would go deeper in our communion with you, that we would understand more the, the, the mystery of the Godhead and how we can be a part of that, that we are part of this, this, this plan of salvation that is designed and, 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 and affected and implemented by the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, that as we've been eavesdropping in on the Trinity in this chapter, Lord, that we would just be in awe that we could be a, a part of this grand scheme of salvation that you've designed for your glory. I pray it motivate us, Father, to, to just want to live for your glory and honor, to obey and to love Christ with all our heart, and to join together 
with like-minded believers in pursuing, um, reaching out to a world that needs to hear the truth and see the truth in us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.